Hey everyone, I'm Brian Treadaway, the pastor at Vertical Church. It's our desire here to lift him up and live him out. We hope today's broadcast will inspire you to do the same. So enjoy today's message. As you can tell, things are a little bit different. We will be celebrating worship through communion today and spending some time in worship toward the end of our service. We've been a part of a series called Seeing Red. And we've been looking at what it, what it costs us when our life sees red, whenever anger is what drives us, whenever we are overtaken by waves of anger, bitterness, resentment, when we lose self-control and destructive anger takes place. We all know the phrase, seeing red. But I want to suggest something to you different today. And this is where we've been heading the whole time through our series. Seeing red in destructive anger is overcome when you begin to see the red of the cross. When you see the red of what Christ has done for you, it will bring into your life some peace and hope and forgiveness that you've never had before. You'll stop seeing red toward others when you start seeing the red shed for you. So this morning, this is where we're headed. That we might have our, our gaze altered, our lives altered, because we see the red of the blood shed for us. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about not just the wrath of man and destructive anger, but we've talked about the wrath of God. And it has um, it's been challenging. It's, uh, it's taken us deeper. It's raised the commitment level. It's challenged us on so many levels. We saw several weeks ago how Jesus, in anger, walked into the temple and cleansed it. That it might be a house of prayer to the Father, not a den of thieves. We saw last week how the wrath of God is being revealed even today against all ungodliness. And we saw the very powerful, sad way that God's wrath is revealed today. Sad for us, not for him. He stops stopping those who resist and he reveals his anger that way. By letting those who, re who refuse his grace and persist in their sin, he stops stopping them. But today we turn to one more passage in the scripture where God's wrath is seen. A place that you may be surprised to see God's wrath. We're beginning today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to tie in today with communion. If you have your Bible, turn in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We begin already into the scene that is preparing us for the crucifixion. We begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has had his final meal with his disciples. Judas has already left to go do what he must do. Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. He's given them the bread and the juice. The scripture says they left that room singing and they entered the garden. And here the tone begins to change. Jesus' heart begins to be very heavy. And in verse 41, it begins with these words. And he, Jesus, was withdrawn from them, the disciples, about a stone's throw. 
And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. You know, the words of Scripture are powerful and poignant. When you understand the meaning behind them, there is life beyond what you can imagine. So I want us to break this passage apart today to see what is truly happening here. These are not just simple words that Jesus says. They are words with great agony and energy and passion. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have heard Jesus in the garden say these words. I don't know whether it was with great volume so the disciples heard it. I don't know whether it was with such, such silence and pain that only Jesus himself heard them, but I know they were words that were filled with intensity. He's asking if there is some way in the Father's will to have what is about to happen change. He says, Father, if it is your will, is there a way, is there a possibility that what is ahead could be changed? And Jesus puts it in a connotation that we can understand. He puts what's about to happen to him in the form of a metaphor. He says, if it is your will, take this cup from me. There's a cup I'm about to have to drink. It wasn't a literal cup. It was an experience that was ahead. There's something that's about to happen. And Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Now I know because of what you've read and seen, maybe even in movie form, it's easy to look ahead at what we know is gonna happen next in the life of Jesus and say, surely he's talking about all that's about to happen to him physically. Surely he's talking about the crown of thorns that's gonna be pressed into his scalp and into his skull. Surely it has to do with the, the scourging and the whipping that's about to happen. Surely it has to refer to that as he is whipped beyond just his own strength and within just inches of his life. Surely this is what he's referring to. Let this cup pass from me, take this cup from me. Surely it has something to do with Peter denying him, the disciple he's poured himself into the most. Surely has something to do with that and the heartache of knowing he's going to deny they even knew him. Surely it has something to do with the weight of the cross, him having to carry his own cross, his own instrument of death through the street. Surely it has something to do with that. Surely the, the weight of that, the, that's torn back and carrying the cross on that, surely it has something to do with maybe the unfair trials he's about to have to go through. Let this cup pass from me. Surely it has something to do with the nails that would be into his hands, the nails into his feet. Surely it has something to do with all of that because in our minds, that's what we imagine to be the worst part of the crucifixion, the physical torture beyond what anybody can even imagine. Surely that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, take this cup from me. I would suggest to you today, that from what I read in scripture, what we're gonna see, it is not the physical torture that Jesus faces that he will be asking to take away from him. 
It is something far more grievous, something far more heavy, something that we will have to contemplate and take in today. Amen? Amen. I just want to ask as we go forward here if we could have a spirit of reverence. Uh, lobby, I'm sure you're hearing me. Booth, room. Because what we're about to deal with are holy matters. I wouldn't want anyone to miss out because of some conversations taking place on the side. Amen? Amen. Okay. Jesus says there's a cup that he must take. The Old Testament was filled with stories about cups. There was sometimes a reference to a cup of blessing. Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Cup of blessing. There's a cup of salvation referred to in Psalm 116, verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. But the cup that Jesus refers to is neither of those. The cup that Jesus refers to is one that is mentioned in a couple of different passages. Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed. He pours out from it. But the dregs of it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain its dregs and drink. Jeremiah 25, verse 15, For so says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take the wine cup of this wrath at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I shall send you to drink. The cup that Jesus is referring to, that he is about to face, that he will drink is not a cup of blessing. It's not really a cup of salvation. Jesus is about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. It's been stored up over time. From the first sin committed in the garden to the final sin ever committed, it's been stored up. The consequences for it, the judgment for it, Holy God is storing up his wrath, not just for some end time, but for this time. And Jesus is about to drink a cup in his life that no man could ever drink. It will be the cup of the judgment, the holiness, the justice, the righteous wrath of God towards sin. A cup that is deserving for those who have sinned to drink. For all of those who had walked away, rejected, denied. For all of those who lived in perversion. For all of those who lived in greed. For all of those who have hurt others. For all of those who have been captors. For all of those who have wrought wickedness on this earth. There is wrath from God. Because you cannot experience the holiness of God, the glory of God, until first sin is atoned for. I want us to think for just a moment about a cup of wrath. We began last week talking about this idea that God at his core is holy. He does love and he is love. He does show mercy and he does show grace. But he also shows wrath toward those who reject his glory 
and keep others from experiencing his glory. This wrath comes as part of his holiness, but it also comes as part of his compassion. Because God in his holiness is longing for you and I to experience his holiness. It's what he wants. It was the goal from day one. It was the plan, has always been his plan, that man might experience, live in his glory and holiness. And sin twists, perverts, and keeps us from that. And so God, in his passion, says, I will destroy, I will remove, and I will atone for the sin that keeps man from knowing my glory. It's the wrath of God. It's his wrath against sin. Sin is the great destroyer, perverter, twister. It's the sin that caused Adam and Eve in the garden to say, there's another way. Let's not listen to what he says. It's the same sin that caused Abel to kill Cain out of jealousy. It's the same sin that caused King David to lust and take another man's wife and have him murdered and then lie about it. It's the same sin that's deceptive and deadly as a coiled up snake. It's the same sin that's as painful and disfiguring as leprosy. It's the same sin of which Jesus referred to and he says, if you even look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's the sin that God listed in his law that he, great, he gave great attention to. The law in the Old Testament is filled with the righteous requirements of God. And God listed there in Deuteronomy and also in Leviticus, he lists the blessings that come to all of those who keep his law. And he lists the consequences, the cursings that come upon all of those who reject his law and walk in sin. These, these curses were so great that God said, if, if you choose to not walk in my ways, if you choose to walk in your own ways and live in sin, then you will live a life that is cursed. It'll be cursed wherever you go. You'll go out into the street and you'll be cursed. You'll come back in your house and they'll be cursed. You'll go out to do your work and you'll be cursed. You'll raise your children and instead of you getting to enjoy them, they'll be taken from you. It's part of the curse. There'll be a drought upon your crops. Anything you try to grow will be taken from you because of your sin. Crime will rise. You'll have, but it'll be taken from you. There'll be emotional and mental confusion in your life because you are trying to walk in your own ways and rejecting God's ways. And God says in his law, there will be confusion because you are choosing sin over my path, over my ways. He even goes on and says there will be national strife when you walk in sin. Another nation will come and take you captive. Boy, it is almost like reading a daily news thread when you read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus and you see the curses that are outlined there and you think about what's happening in our land today and you think about what's happening in people's lives today. One of the most frightening parts of those lists of curses in the Old Testament of the law, one of the parts that just stands out, that just kind of grips me as God was doing his best to portray to man, 
the horror, the ugliness, the vileness of sin and its impact in your life. One of the things that grips me is in the Old Testament where it says, I will, God speaking, visit your iniquity onto the third and fourth generation. In other words, if you choose to keep sin in your life, if you choose to deny what I say, if you choose to live selfishly, you're going to face the consequences of it. But here's how destructive sin is. It will not just affect you, but it will spill over into your children's life. It'll spill over in your grandchildren's lives. And after you have been dead and gone, the effect will continue to the third and the fourth generation. That is how powerful, destructive, damning sin is. And God was laying it out. Do not walk in their ways. Walk in my ways. Come to me, says the Lord. Walk in my law. And you read the, the consequences of those sins. You read the, the tone of God's wrath raging up against individuals, families, nations who refuse to walk in his way. And you realize that same intensity that same drive he feels towards sin today. Those sins that you've committed, that you now regret, that you look back on and maybe some other folks in your life even know what they are and you remember them. It also speaks to those sins that no one else knows about you. Those sins of the secret those sins that you toy with today, those sins incur the anger of God. Those sins keep you and man from holiness. If you've never stopped to consider the depth of God's hatred towards sin and how that applies to your life, if you've never stopped and considered that the sins you've committed are not just soft errors, they're not just little mess-ups, but they are personal affronts to God, that they are the antithesis of his holiness, that they are at the core of all that is evil and wicked. If you've not stopped to consider that, then you can never experience the fullness of the gospel. If you've never sat and wept at the depth of your own sin, if you've never come to a place where it grips you, that you've not walked in God's ways, then you've yet to experience the depths of the gospel. You can't know the depths of mercy and grace until you've known the reality of judgment and wrath. Until you know something of God's wrath against sin. And so this, this is what causes Jesus to say, Father, if it's your will, let this cup, this cup of judgment, this cup that has all of the anger and wrath 
and vileness of sin in it and to be poured out. If there's another way, God, take this cup from me because Jesus is about to bear not just the cruelty of a Roman government, but he's about to face the wrath of God. It wasn't a Roman government. It wasn't a few bad soldiers. It wasn't just the Pharisees that caused what happened to Jesus to happen. It was ordained by God. Back to our story in the garden, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. I'm skipping a little bit there. Jesus goes on and says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is in agony at what is ahead. We know that because it says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Here is the Son of God in agony about what is about to happen. In so much desperation, so much heartache, that he has to have an angel come strengthen him. It goes on to verse 44, and it says this, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That's what you do when you get into agony, by the way. You pray more earnestly. Then the scripture tells us something that only the Gospel of Luke records. And it's fascinating because Luke was a doctor. And Luke would have known this. It says, Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Many have read this for centuries, not understanding its depth and meaning. But doctors today know that there is a condition a very rare condition in which it is possible to be under such immense stress and pressure that the capillaries in your forehead and face actually burst forth with blood. It's a condition called hematidrosis. You can look it up later. An actual condition in which under stress Blood becomes like sweat. Think, my goodness, that kind of intensity in prayer, that kind of intensity over a, what is about to happen. This is no small thing. This is no light thing that is happening here. Jesus is full, fully aware of what is about to happen. The cross is becoming the place where God will pour out his wrath. We move ahead to that scene. Jesus has been taken. He's been whipped. He's been placed on the cross. He's being mocked. And the scripture says in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. And he interprets it for us. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Here on the cross, Jesus is in the full pouring out of God's wrath. In this moment, he is experiencing something he has not experienced before. The Bible makes it clear in this moment from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In this moment, at this time, on the cross, Jesus is drinking a cup. He's becoming something he had never been. He had never been sinned. He had never experienced it before. He had not sinned and he didn't deserve it, but he was becoming sin in this moment and the wrath of God saved up from all of time past to all of time future was now being poured out upon him. He was facing the wrath of God as though he had committed every sin from time to time, and he is the one bearing the brunt of it, all of it. Like the wall of a dam that has been built, holding back the judgment against every sin ever committed, whether it be some white lie, or whether it be the most perverse, destructive, anger-filled sin you can imagine committed by the most heinous of criminals. Those sins, that judgment poured out on Jesus at this time. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God. I've never been in this spot before. I've never experienced this before. And he puts it into some words where he says, why, why have you forsaken me? I know it has become a popular theme of Christian music to take this passage and to say, in this moment, God the Father turned his back on the Son, for he could not look upon sin. But I will tell you this morning, you will not find that anywhere in Scripture. The Father doesn't turn away from the Son. The Father can't deny himself son. God in that moment did not look away in disgust. God in that moment did not abandon the son and leave him alone. In fact, the scripture says just the opposite. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God, listen to me, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Where was he? In the Son. Yes. Colossians 1.20. 
And through him, having made peace through the blood of his cross, listen to me, it pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself through him. Jesus was there bearing sin. The Father did not run away. The Father was there weeping. The Father was there bearing. The Father in all of it was actually, as the Bible says, pleased at what was happening. You can't be pleased and running away. You can't be pleased and abandoning him. He was there in Christ with him, strengthening him. Then why would Jesus say, why have you forsaken me? Because when you get sin in your life, it'll twist everything that you've ever thought. It'll make you even think that the Father has denied you. Oh, are you with me all of a sudden? You see, you let sin get up in your life and you not deal with it, not confess it. It'll make you say, God, why have you forsaken me? And he'll be right there the whole time. He never left you. He was right there with you. And we're seeing the sin's impact. This is what happened when he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He was there. His heart was broken, but his heart was pleased because what was happening was a way was being made. A way was being made that would glorify the Father. A way was being made for man to come to the Father. A way was made for God to reconcile all things to himself. Such wisdom, sovereignty that you and I can't even begin to fathom. God was pleased. Isaiah 53 prophesied that this would happen. Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was paying the price for the awful vileness of sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. God did what not even the rulers of wickedness could ever figure out. God did what no one could understand. God redeemed and reconciled. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at it. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It wasn't the Roman government. It wasn't some twisted soldiers. It wasn't just the Pharisees. It wasn't just some people who were mean. It was the Lord who laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin that you have committed, every sin that you've committed and not confessed yet, every sin that you've committed and hidden, everything that stands today as what is vile and disgusting, every time you turn on 
the news today and you find out about some person who has kidnapped some child and has twisted and perverted and used vile wickedness in that situation, every sin related to that and every other, every sin related to crime, every sin related to hatred, every sin related to enslaving someone else, Jesus was bearing the consequences and the curse of those sins as though he were the one who committed them. And he did it all so that those who put their faith in him could stand like him and receive the righteousness of God though you've never been righteous in your life. Jesus was becoming something he had never been so that you and I could become something we've never been, righteous. This is the wrath, the absolute wrath of God poured out. It is why at the end of the time on the cross, Jesus would say, it is finished. He would complete what he had come to do. He would finish the Father's plan and sin would be purged and paid for. That's what he said it was finished for. And then those who would come to him who realized they should be the ones receiving wrath. They should be the ones receiving judgment. He offers freedom and rescue. Romans chapter five, verse nine. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you receive what he accomplished and you will never ever ever face the wrath of God for your sins because you have been set free you've been released you have received what the substitute took and gave it becomes ours now I've met some people who hear this truth, this power of grace, this power of freedom, this power of what we have received in Christ. I've met some people along the way who take that beautiful power, holy truth that says, I am now made righteous in the sight of God. I've met some people who take that beautiful truth and say, oh, great, now, I can go sin and do whatever I want because I've been forgiven. I'm just going to tell you, if that's your approach to the holy, beautiful power of the cross, you have completely missed it. If you can continue on in some tirade of selfishness, boasting about your sin because you've been forgiven, you have missed it. A correct theology of taking in truth. The wrath of God poured out in the Son so that we might have the righteousness of God poured out in us. The right response to that is God. 
purge me of any sin. Purge me of anything that doesn't look like you. God, remove anything from me that keeps me from knowing you. God, remove anything from my life that keeps me from knowing your glory. I want to live completely and wholly unto you. That's the right response to the wrath of God poured out on the Son and the righteousness of God poured out on sinners. Amen? This is a new place. Jesus drank this cup of wrath that you and I deserved, that should have been our cup. This should have been us drinking this. Judgment against us because of what we've done. And instead, we come to the new covenant and Jesus says, I offer to you a new cup. This cup of a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new partnership, a new union, a cup of communion, common union. He offers us himself that we might have fellowship, intimacy, closeness with the most high and holy God. And he says, take and drink, for this is the cup of the new covenant. This is a new day, a new union. And in this covenant, God says, I will write my law in their hearts. I will put it in their minds. They'll have a desire to obey me. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I can't even hardly imagine that kind of freedom, that kind of grace that Jesus would say to you and I, sinners, who would repent of our ways and turn to him, now drink, for this is the covenant of my blood poured out for you. Drink it in. Take it in. Allow it to become part of you. This is now the union that we share. This is why when you see the red that's been poured out on the cross and you see the red of the new covenant, you'll be free from seeing red in your life. He'll remove that angry spirit when you keep looking at the cross. He'll remove that resentment and bitterness that you have when you keep seeing the cross. He'll remove that low boil that just stays a part of your life when you come to the cross and drink in what Christ has done. We move forward into the New Testament and we see believers gathered, much like us today, it's on this side of the cross now. It's on this side of the Spirit being poured out. It's on this side that believers gather. We gather today. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he gives us some instructions about what we're about to do today. Listen to these words. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Then some very practical instructions from Scripture. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. We come to a time now where we follow the instructions of Jesus to take the bread. We have it here today. Unleavened bread, symbolizing the holy body of Jesus. It's a bread, as you will see, that has been pierced, baked. It's been through the fire. It represents the body of our Lord Jesus broken for us. We also have the juice here this morning representing the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. It's for us to take and to drink, drinking in this new covenant. But the scripture is very clear that we don't take this moment lightly, that this is something you approach with great prayer and consideration. Because he says there are many who have not done so. They have taken the moment lightly. They have not considered the body of Jesus for them and their sins. He says for this reason, there are many people who are sick and weak. And the passage said sleep, but it's a word for death. There are many, he says, who have not considered the wrath of God poured out for them, who have not considered forgiveness. They've not, it, they've not made it personal. And as a result, it's caused problems, physical, emotional, to the point that some have even died, he says. But he says, so come to this moment, <clears throat> Considering the body, considering what it means for you, allow the Lord to chasten you if necessary, to correct you. It's not his wrath, it's his corrective hand of love. So this morning, I'm, I'm gonna pray here in just a minute, but before you come to take the bread and the juice, I would ask you this, take some time there alone to pray, to allow the Lord to search your heart and correct and chasten that you might truly be free. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, confess that. Don't come here 
before you've done that. Come confessing. Come humble. And then take in the new covenant that's been poured out for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, today we are in awe of what you have done. That when our sin stood against us, when we were bound and burdened by guilt and shame, you sent your son. You sent your son to not just demonstrate love, but to actually take the judgment and wrath that we deserved. To become the substitute, the payment. And there you would, you'd pour out your wrath. You'd be with your son. And you'd set those free who would believe and trust in you. This morning, Father, we come to repent, to confess, to trust, to love, to be chastened, to walk in your ways, and be changed by your blood, to drink in a new way of relating, a new covenant, all through the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I really hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. I hope it has inspired you to lift him up and live him out. If you'd like to know more about Vertical Church, check us out online at verticalchurchovilla.com. We'll see you next time.